Well, good morning. It's a privilege to be here with you this morning. Thankful to Joe and Ben for the opportunity to, to fill in for them in the combined class this morning. Before we go ahead and turn our attention to the, the scripture, let's just go ahead and pray and ask for the Lord's help. Father, we're thankful for this morning. We're thankful for the opportunity to look to your word. We're thankful for the fact that you've given it to us. We don't want to take that for for granted. We recognize that there are many without your word. And Lord, we just express thanks for for all that you've done for us and mostly the work of your son. Lord, we pray that as we dive into your, your truth this morning, that you open our eyes to see it for what it is, that our hearts would be inclined to follow it, that our minds would understand it, and Lord, that we would love the truth of your word. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Well, this morning, you know, in, in considering uh, the opportunity that I have t- today and, you know, just one Sunday and not a, not a series of, uh, of weeks in a row, is considering a, a topic and theme that I think all of us have dealt with at times and maybe many of us right now, and that's the topic of discouragement. Discouragement. Maybe you guys are feeling discouragement because of marital hardship. Maybe you're feeling discouragement because of financial stress. Maybe ongoing health problems have been the cause of discouragement at times, or maybe spiritual persecution from from coworkers, from friends, from unsaved family members, from neighbors. Maybe that's the the source of discouragement. Whatever the reason, whatever the, the source, we've all battled that at times. And with the time we have this morning, we're going to look at a passage that I think will, will provide us great help in our fight against discouragement. If you have your Bibles, I'd invite you to open up to the book of Exodus. And this morning we'll be directing our attention to Exodus 5. But it's vital in in jumping into the middle of the book like this, it's vital that we establish a little bit of context before we look directly at Exodus 5. So coming to the fifth chapter, we've obviously already passed the first four. And in doing so, we've, we've covered a time period of approximately 480 years. Exodus 1 tells us of the plight of the Israelites in Egypt. They're, they're suffering under the harsh and oppressive slavery of Pharaoh and his taskmasters. The large Israelite population worried Pharaoh, and he sought to weaken and destroy the Israelite people through hard service. They were forced to build large structures for Pharaoh, and the conditions and treatment were absolutely deplorable. Their sufferings in Egypt became so bad that they cried out for help. Look with me at Exodus 2, verses 23 through 25. It says this, During these many days the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. And these words tell us that that even though the Israelites were suffering, even though they were facing great difficulty and harsh treatment, God was not aloof concerning their situation. God had not turned his back on them. God, God had not abandoned them. He was in total control and completely aware of all they were facing. And not only that, he was working to free his people from their suffering. That's what we discover in chapter 3 as we see God descend from his heavenly throne to commission Moses the man the Lord would use to deliver his people from Egyptian captivity. 
God spoke to Moses from the burning bush, starting in Exodus 3, verse 5. Look with me. He says this, Do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you're standing is holy ground. And he said, I'm the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I've come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, and the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. And I would just encourage you guys, as we look at this text this morning, to remember that the story of Exodus is our story. This is so important. Just as God saw Israel in the midst of their affliction and their suffering, and God has witnessed us in our affliction. Just as God descended to deliver the Israelites from Egyptian captivity, He has descended to deliver us from our captivity. Turn with me just just for a moment to Ephesians chapter 2. It's just a beautiful truth and something that's so important for us to remember as we're looking at this text of Scripture. But we see in Ephesians 2, you know, in chapter 1, Paul told the Ephesians of the richness of the blessing that they have in Christ. But in chapter 2, he reminds them of something so important. He starts out in verse 1 of Ephesians 2, saying, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Our suffering was so bad that prior to our conversion, we didn't even realize it. We were spiritually dead, enslaved to the sinful course of this world, being led about by our wicked passions and desires. And then we see verse 4, But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, made us alive together with Christ. It's the richness of God's mercy, the greatness of his love, the perfection of his kindness that compelled him to save wicked sinners, taking those who were previously spiritually dead and giving us spiritual life. This is what we see. We see the humility of Jesus on display in Philippians 2. We see in Philippians 2, verses 5 through 8, the beautiful nature of Jesus' condescension, his coming to earth. Paul tells us in that passage of the immense love and the servant-hearted humility of Jesus, that he would step down from his heavenly throne to redeem those who were completely opposed to him. What love, what kindness, what condescension. This is what our Lord has done for us. He's shown He has shown us humble love. He has shown us condescension. He sought to deliver Israel from its earthly captor, and he's done the same for us. He's delivered us from our spiritual captor. Colossians 1, 13 and 14 tells us he's delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of our sins. So be encouraged as we look this morning at Exodus, and primarily chapter 5, just be encouraged that what we see, this is our story. This is the story of our lives as well if we are followers of God. The same God we examine in Exodus is the God who has worked 
in our lives. The same God who stooped to save in Exodus is the God who has stooped to save us in the midst of our suffering. So we should praise him for it, no doubt, but be encouraged that what we see in Exodus is, is what God has, has done for us. The same work of God continues in Exodus 4, as we witness, again, just establishing a little bit of context, the same work of God continues in Exodus 4 as we witness God deliver on a promise. He called Moses in chapter 3 to return to Egypt and to speak to the Israelites. And Moses expressed his doubt concerning that, saying in Exodus 4.1, But behold, they won't believe me or listen to my voice, for they'll say the Lord didn't appear to you. Yet we see in the final verse of chapter 4, these words, and the people believed. And when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel and that he had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and worshipped. God spoke and his word came to pass. He told Moses that the people would believe and they did. But we see they didn't just believe, they responded properly in accordance with that belief in worship. They bowed their heads in worship. They praised God when they heard the message he had given Moses. And with those words, chapter 4 comes to a close, and we're ready to jump into our passage this morning, Exodus 5. So follow along with me as I begin reading in verse 1. Afterward, Moses and Aaron went and said to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Let my people go, that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord, that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord. And moreover, I will not let Israel go. Then they said, The God of the Hebrews has met with us. Please, let us go a three days journey into the wilderness, that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God, lest he fall upon us with pestilence or with the sword. But the king of Egypt said to them, Moses and Aaron, why do you take the people away from their work? Get back to your burdens. And Pharaoh said, Behold, the people of the land are now many. And you make them rest from their burdens. The same day Pharaoh commanded the taskmasters of the people and their foremen, You shall no longer give the people straw to make bricks as in the past. Let them go and gather straw for themselves. But the number of bricks that they made in the past you shall impose on them. You shall by no means reduce it, for they are idle. Therefore they cry, Let us go and offer sacrifice to our God. Let heavier work be laid on the men that they may labor at it and pay no regard to lying words." So the taskmasters and the foremen of the people went out and said to the people, Thus says Pharaoh, I will not give you straw. Go and get your straw yourself, wherever you can find it, but your work will not be reduced in the least. So the people were scattered throughout all the land of Egypt to gather stubble for straw. The taskmasters were urgent, saying, Complete your work, your daily task each day as when there was straw. And the foremen of the people of Israel, whom Pharaoh's taskmasters had set over them, were beaten and were asked, Why have you not done all your task of making bricks today and yesterday as in the past? And then the foreman of the people of Israel came and cried to Pharaoh, Why do you treat your servants like this? No straw is given to your servants, yet they say to us, Make bricks, and behold, your servants are beaten, but the fault is in your own people. But he said, You are idle. You are idle. That is why you say, Let us go and sacrifice to the Lord. Go now and work. No straw will be given you, but you must deliver the same number of bricks. The foremen of the people of Israel saw that they were in trouble when they said, You shall by no means reduce your number of bricks, your daily task each day. They met Moses and Aaron who were waiting for them as they came out from Pharaoh, and they said to them, The Lord look on you and judge, 
because you've made us stink in the sight of Pharaoh and his servants and have put a sword in their hand to kill us. And then Moses turned to the Lord and said, O Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people, and you have not delivered your people at all. In this passage this morning, I want us to, to have three reminders. Three reminders for the battle against discouragement. Three reminders for the battle against discouragement. The first is this. World rulers are under the sovereign rule of God. World rulers are under the sovereign rule of God. Verses 1 through 4. Afterward, Moses and Aaron went and said to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Let my people go, that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord, that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I will not let Israel go. Then they said, The God of the Hebrews has met with us. Please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness, that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God, lest he fall upon us with pestilence or with the sword. But the king of Egypt said to them, Moses and Aaron, why do you take the people away from their work? Get back to your burdens. Chapter opens by stating that Moses and Aaron approached Pharaoh just as God had told them to do. And remember, prior to this meeting, they had met with the, the elders of Israel as God had told them to relay the information that he had made known to Moses in chapter 3. And though Moses was filled with doubt regarding this meeting, it went well. The people believed. The people believed all they heard from Moses and Aaron. And now we see them approach Pharaoh with a seemingly simple request. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, let my people go that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. The Israelites were God's children, not Pharaoh's. They'd been serving Pharaoh, but they needed to serve their father. The scripture does not indicate whether Moses and Aaron were joined by the elders of the nation of Israel at this time when they, when they approached Pharaoh. Back in chapter 3, God told them that the elders of Israel should accompany them, but we're not told here. Exodus 5 doesn't mention their, their presence or their lack of presence necessarily. However, the Bible does clearly tell us that afterward, after their meeting with the elders of Israel, they went to meet with Pharaoh. They approached the king of Egypt with confidence and with a courageous faith. It's hardly even imaginable that, that, that the Moses we see in the earlier chapters of Exodus would even approach Pharaoh and say this. He's in the presence of the most powerful man in the world demanding that he do something. Courage is not an attribute we see in the life of Moses, at least early on. Prior to Exodus 5, we witnessed him in chapter 2 cover up a, a murder in the Egyptian desert and then flee to Midian in fear. In chapter 3, we read of excuses as to why he couldn't approach Pharaoh. And in chapter 4, we saw his fear that no one would listen to his message. Yet here at the start of chapter 5, he spoke to the king of Egypt. He spoke to the most powerful man in the world and did so with divine authority, declaring, Thus says the Lord. What happened? What changed? What brought about the transformation in the life of Moses? Well, listen to these words from Philip Ryken in his commentary on the book of Exodus. He says, the answer to that question is that Moses had met the living God. Moses had seen God's glory in the burning bush. He had heard the great I am announce the message of salvation. He had received God's call accompanied by marvelous signs. And at first Moses had trouble believing that it was all true. 
But he did the right thing. He started to trust God's promises and obey God's commands. And as he stepped out in faith, he discovered that God's word is indeed faithful and true, and that in spite of his many inadequacies, he was supernaturally equipped to do what God had called him to do. From the first faltering steps of his pilgrimage, Moses' experience of God's presence made him confident to do God's will. This is the same thing that happened in the life of the disciples. Outside of a few instances, the Gospels portray the disciples in the words of one pastor as dim-witted, weak-willed glory seekers. When Jesus was at the time of his greatest need, they all betrayed him, first by falling asleep and then by scattering and running off into the darkness. Yet shortly after his death and resurrection and his ascension, they were out boldly proclaiming the truth of the gospel. The thing that brought about the incredible change is that they had been with Jesus. They had met with the living God. Once the disciples had met with the risen Jesus, they were filled with courageous faith, faith such that nothing in the world would cause them to live for anything less than the glory of God. And this is what's happened to all genuine followers of God who've met with him. When we experience genuine spiritual conversion, the Spirit of God works within us and we believe and act upon the truth. We love others. We, we speak the truth of the gospel to those we're around. We seek to not compromise on our convictions. Not that we do these things perfectly. We still battle indwelling sin. But this becomes the general pattern of, of our lives. The reason for this is just, just one possible explanation. We've met with God and His Son, Jesus Christ. Listen to these words from, from Charles Spurgeon as he preached on the life of Moses and how we as believers should act in light of what we see. He says, I'm persuaded that Moses, after he'd gotten over his little difficulty, was strong in faith. There he stood with the wondrous rod, turning waters into blood and slaying all their fish, covering the heavens with blackness, turning the dust into living creatures, bringing hail and doing it all as calmly and quietly as he should do who feels that he is the voice of God. How steadily he kept at his work, with what diligence he preserved in it, till at last the tenth plague found Moses unmoved, ready to conduct the people away to the Red Sea and to bring them out into the wilderness. O servants of God, be calm and confident. Go on with steady perseverance. Be sure of this, ye shall not labor in vain or spend your strength for naught. Do you still stutter? Are you still slow of speech? Nevertheless, go on, toil on, and believe on. Be steadfast in your confidence and trust in the Lord. And now, in spite of the confidence that Moses and Aaron both expressed in approaching Pharaoh, we see Pharaoh responded rather negatively. Verse 2 saying, Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I don't know the Lord, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. Here with his opening words, the utter hardness of Pharaoh's heart is revealed as he says, Who is the Lord? This phrase gives us a glimpse into the true conflict of the book of Exodus that will dominate the following chapters. As we saw you know, in our, in our brief review earlier in the book, uh, the, the real battle at work here in the book of Exodus is not primarily between the Israelites and the Egyptians. The real battle is not between Moses and and Pharaoh, the real battle, the true conflict, is between Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, and Yahweh, the God of Israel, the king of kings. 
And here in verse 2, Pharaoh's not asking a genuine question, honestly inquiring, who is the Lord, so that he can be aware of the Israelites' God. No, his answer to Moses and Aaron saying, who is the Lord, is a demonstration of his disrespect and, and sarcasm. This is made clear in the remainder of the verse, where he says, who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. It's not necessarily the case that, that, that Pharaoh doesn't know who the Israelites worship. He is most likely well aware, yet he fails to acknowledge the God of, of the Israelites as someone that he should subject himself to, someone that he should submit to. I'm Pharaoh. I'm the king of Egypt. I'm the most powerful man on earth. Who is the Lord? This is, this is absolute wicked rebellion against the God of the universe. This is, this is a sinful failure to submit to the sovereignty of God. In the following verse we read, Then they, Moses and Aaron, then they said, The God of the Hebrews has met with us. Please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God, lest he fall upon us with pestilence or with the sword. This response to Pharaoh's abject rejection of God is not a demonstration of Moses and Aaron sinking back and asking for a lesser request. It's not as if they're saying, okay, you won't let us go as we asked before. Well, maybe we could just take a little, a little three, three days journey into the wilderness, maybe like an extended weekend. In verse 3, they're really just rewording their request from, from verse 1. As one commentator noted, the the predominant view is that the three-day journey indicates not the time away from Egypt, but the approximate time it would take to get to the proper site for celebration, without in any way implying that a return in Egypt, to Egypt is in view. Verse 3, then, is not a, a cowering response on the part of Moses. The requests of verse 1 and verse 3 are not really different. Rather, Moses is now spelling out more clearly the request of verse 1. However, in verse 3, Moses does place a greater emphasis on the source of the message. He says, the God of the Hebrews has met with us. Pharaoh, this isn't simply a message of two elderly men. The God of the Hebrews is commanding you. Yahweh is commanding you. The King of kings, the sovereign Lord of lords, is commanding you to let his people go. But this carries no weight with Pharaoh, as we see in verse 4. It says, the king of Egypt said to them, Moses and Aaron, why do you take the people away from their work? Get back to your burdens. He's essentially saying, I'm a busy man. Stop wasting my time with this nonsense. Don't delay your work any further. Get back to your burdens. And the burdens he's making reference to is, is the oppressive slavery that the Israelites have, have faced while in Egypt. This is what we saw in, in, in Exodus 1. Exodus 1 verses 11 through 14 says this, Therefore they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh's store cities, Pithom and Ramses, but the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel, so they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work of the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. These are the burdens that Pharaoh is telling them to, to get back to. It's his absolute hardness of heart, his utter rebellion against God that has led him to reject the message brought by Moses and Aaron. Yet Pharaoh's hard heart was under the sovereign control of God. You don't have to turn there with me, but, but I'd encourage you to write down these references. This is just some of what the rest of the Bible has to say about God's power over the most powerful individuals in the world. Proverbs 8.15 says, By me kings reign 
and rulers decree what is just. Proverbs 21.1, the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. Daniel 2.21, he changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. Daniel 4.17, the most high rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. How should we then think? How should we act? How should we speak regarding the human rulers of this, this age? Romans 13.1 Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Now with that said, we have the first reminder in the battle against discouragement, which has probably been more so in the last, the last year with with everything leading up to what's happened in the past few weeks, the world rulers are under the sovereign rule of God. And now we move on to the second reminder in the battle against discouragement, and that would be this. Circumstances are divinely granted to you. Circumstances are divinely granted to you. This is found in verses 15 through 19. We won't take the time to read that whole chunk again right now, but, but in verses 5 through 7, we see Pharaoh command his taskmasters and the foremen of the people of Israel regarding their burdens. Here Pharaoh's enlisting the assistance of those who hand out the orders regarding the Israelites' workload. In light of his, his confrontation with Moses and Aaron in the preceding verses, he's decided to make their hard service even harder. Verse 7 says that the people will no longer be supplied the straw that they've been given to make bricks. They're going to have to go out and get that themselves. You know, obviously when bricks are made today, they're bound together by a, a chemical agent. But, but when bricks were made then, they used straw to really bind the materials together. It was an essential ingredient. And here, though we see Pharaoh declare that the same number of bricks will have to be made, he's saying you're going to have to go out and get the materials yourselves as well. His already unrealistic demands have become more unrealistic. Their hard service has become even harder, as verses 8 and 9 make clear. Their workload will remain the same, but they'll need to gather the materials now as well. Look at verses 8 and 9 with me. Exodus chapter 5, verses 8 and 9. But the number of bricks that they made in the past, you shall impose on them. You shall by no means reduce it, for they are idle. Therefore they cry, let us go and offer sacrifice to our God. Let heavier work be laid on the men, that they may labor at it and pay no regard to lying words. Notice Pharaoh claims that the reason the people are now going to be forced to work harder is because they're idle, they're lazy. The reason they want to go and offer sacrifice to God is just to get out of, out of work. Therefore, their work will be doubled. However, we know from Exodus 2.23 and, and Exodus 3.7, they weren't crying out due to laziness. They weren't crying out because they're idle. Rather, it's because the, the, the suffering, the affliction, the oppression they faced was so intense. And by belittling the Israelites' pain and suffering, Pharaoh's positioning himself even in a position of more further opposition to God. Pharaoh's adamant he will not let the Israelites go and serve the Lord. They will remain in Egypt and serve him. Pharaoh's elevated himself to the level of a deity. This is supported by verse 10. So the taskmasters and the foremen of the people went out and said to the people, thus says Pharaoh. 
I will not give you straw. The wording of verse 10 is, is not accidental. It's, it's, it is a deliberate echo of verse 1 where it said, Thus says the Lord. Yahweh is the one true God of Israel. He's given a command that Pharaoh let the Israelites go. But Pharaoh comes back with his elevation of himself and a similar remark. And one of the central questions of the book of Exodus is who are the Israelites going to serve? That's at least a central question in the, the first half of the book. Is it going to be God or is it going to be Pharaoh? Both are, are seeking the service and worship of the Israelites. And at the end of chapter 4, the Israelites were bowing down their heads and worshiping the Lord. Yet now their sufferings have increased. And we see in verses 14 through 16 that they quickly turn from the Lord right back to Pharaoh. Look with me at, at verses 14 through 16. And the foremen of the people of Israel, whom Pharaoh's taskmasters had set over them, were beaten and were asked, Why have you not done all your task of making bricks today and yesterday as in the past? Then the foremen of the people of Israel came and cried to Pharaoh, Why do you treat your servants like this? No straw is given to your servants, yet they say to us, Make bricks. And behold, your servants are beaten, but the fault is in your own people. The foremen referred to here are, are a group of Israelite men who are involved in the supervision and direction of the Israelite workers. Pharaoh's taskmasters would instruct the foreman regarding the work, and the foreman would communicate that to the rest of the Israelites. Notice that, that after the foremen are beaten in verse 14, they cried out to Pharaoh. And they identify themselves three times as his servants. As one pastor noted, this shows how much power Pharaoh still held over them. They were so used to being in bondage that they could not think of themselves as anything but slaves. Rather than seeking to be free, they went back to renegotiate the terms of their captivity. Yet it didn't matter what the foreman had to say, just as it didn't matter what Moses and Aaron had to say. Pharaoh wasn't listening. Look at verses 17 and 18. But he said, you're idle. You are idle. That is why you say, let us go and sacrifice to the Lord. Go now and work. No straw will be given you, but you must still deliver the same number of bricks. Pharaoh's response to the foreman was the same as his response to Moses and Aaron. He accused the Israelites of being idle, being lazy. And once again, he commands that no matter how hard it might be, they still must produce the same amount of bricks. This shows how twisted Pharaoh was in his thinking. When those who were serving him came to complain about being overworked, he assumed they weren't working hard enough. The foreman should have known better than to try to fix things on their own, though. They also should have known better to expect anything like sympathy from Pharaoh. He, wasn't the pro he was the problem, not the solution. The Israelites were mastered by Pharaoh. There was no reason to assume he would do anything to liberate them. But this is also true of us. We were mastered by sin, and there was, there's, there's no reason to think that Satan would be our liberator. This account of the, the bricks without straw in Exodus 5 portrays Pharaoh as a harsh man with a hardened heart far beyond the power of any human to change it. The only force capable of compelling him to let God's people go was God's own mighty hand. This is exactly what God said in Exodus 3.19. But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. And just as the mighty hand of God would be the sole reason that the Israelites would go on to be freed from Egyptian captivity, 
It's only the mighty hand of God that can deliver a sinner from sin. He alone has the power and ability to change a sinner's hardened heart and thus to bring freedom from sin and death. And, and for those of us who've been set free from bondage by the liberator, Jesus Christ, we must not go back into the shackles of our previous enslavement. The Hebrew foremen are typical of what, of what many Christians do, particularly when they first come to Christ. In the beginning, all things seem to be going well. And then as life presses on, hardship strikes and difficulties encountered and, and we're prone to, to let discouragement set in. But remember that your situation and your circumstances, again, are divinely granted to you by your Heavenly Father. If you're a follower of God and you find yourself discouraged in the midst of difficult circumstances, take heart and be encouraged that God is in control. He's in control of your circumstances and He's using them for your good. Well, this brings us to our final reminder in the midst of discouragement. First, world rulers are under the sovereign rule of God. Second, circumstances are divinely granted to us. And now we come to the third and final and probably most important reminder in the battle against discouragement. And it's just something very simple. Trust God's word. We just have to trust God's word. Verses 19 through 22. The foremen of the people of Israel saw that they were in trouble when they said, You shall by no means reduce your number of bricks, your daily task each day. They met with Moses and Aaron who were waiting for them as they came out from Pharaoh and they said to them, The Lord look on you and judge because you've made a stink in the sight of Pharaoh and his servants and have put a sword in their hand to kill us. And then Moses turned to the Lord and said, O Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people and you have not delivered your people at all. The foreman who had just been beaten because the required number of bricks were not produced blamed Moses and Aaron for their problems. They accused them, claiming that, that they were the, the cause of the increased heavy burdens. And the response we see from Moses is crucial. Unlike the foreman, Moses rightly turns to the Lord, yet he doesn't approach God in humble faith. Rather, Moses doubts and questions what on earth God is doing. Moses doubts God's goodness, saying, Why have you done evil to this people? He doubts God's purpose, saying, Why did you send me? He doubts God's action, saying, You haven't delivered your people at all. And God told Moses that Pharaoh wouldn't listen unless compelled by a mighty hand, yet Moses failed to remember and cling to God's word. And just as we saw ourselves potentially in the Hebrew foreman, we can see ourselves in Moses as well. Moses isn't perfect. He's, he's a weak and feeble sinner just like us. He's prone to doubt and question and rebel when difficulty occurs just like us. And at times, life brings deep discouragement. It can bring intense heartache, trouble, and pain. And Moses was following God, yet the situation he found himself in was getting worse. Following God doesn't always lead to better conditions in this life. In fact, oftentimes it brings difficulty. Jesus told us this in John 16:33 when he said, In this world, you will have trouble. So how do we fight discouragement? How do we battle the trouble and tribulation we face? We fight it and we overcome it by clinging to the promises of God's word. We must be people who are characterized by our trust and faith in 
God and his word. So that no matter the circumstances around us, whether that is something like a job loss, again, hardship within a relationship, uh, difficulty from unsaved family members and friends, uh, debilitating medical condition, whether those things arise, we don't have to question or doubt God's goodness or his purpose. We can fight the discouragement and the heartache of life by clinging to the promises of his word. I think the most encouraging promise for Christians in all the scripture is Romans 8.28, which says, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. But we can't forget verse 29, because Paul goes on to say, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. God works all things together for our good, which is making us more and more like his Son. This is why we can trust and obey the words of James 1, 2 through 4. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Listen to these encouraging words concerning the suffering Jesus endured and the purpose of suffering we face in this life. In his book, Walking with God Through Pain and Suffering, Tim Keller writes this, Jesus lost all his glory so that we could be clothed in it. He was shut out so we could get access. He was bound and nailed so that we could be set free. He was cast out so we could approach. And Jesus took away the only kind of suffering that can really destroy you, that is being cast away from God. He took it upon himself so that now all suffering that comes in your life will only make you greater. He goes on to say, a lump of coal under pressure becomes a diamond, and the suffering of a person in Christ only turns you into someone more beautiful. So commit yourself to cling to and hold fast to the promises of God's word when you face suffering in life, both for for your good and his glory. Let's go ahead and pray. Father, we're thankful for the time this morning. We're thankful for the opportunity to approach you through prayer to look at your word and lord i just pray whether there are those right now who are experiencing discouragement or lord discouragement may be right around the corner for some i pray that you'd help us to keep these things in mind lord that you're ultimately in control that everything we face in life lord is is part of your sovereign plan for us lord would you just help us to be faithful to trust you to hold fast to your word Lord, to not waver, to not doubt, to not question. Lord, would you help us to be people who are wholeheartedly clinging to you and your word. Lord, I pray that you'd offer encouragement right now to those who are feeling downcast. And we pray these things in your name. Amen.